0: Hey everyone, thank you for tuning into to Open Worlds. I'm Piara and alongside me is Adrian. In this episode, we are joined by none other than Richard Focklington, who is a lead games designer at Dapper Labs. Listen along as we uncover his journey working on AAA mobile games for companies like Glue and Hasbro over the last decade and we find out some of his top tips on designing world-class blockchain games as well. We also learn more about CryptoKitty's moving to Flow blockchain and we get a sneak preview on what the metaverse on Flow could look like. With each weekly Open Worlds episode, we release a limited edition NFT. To collect these, make sure you listen carefully for the secret passcode, which you can use to claim your very own digital collectible. You can find out all the instructions in the description or by following us on Twitter at OpenWorldsFM. Also, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future episodes or any one of our exclusive NFT drops. Thank you once again for joining us. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Open Worlds.
0: Welcome, Richard, to the Open Worlds Podcast. Thanks so much for joining. How are you doing today?
1: I'm Doing great. Thanks very much for inviting me.
0: For sure. We're so excited to have you. You have such an interesting background with over, I believe, 40 years of developing some of the world's most popular games. Can you talk us through your journey leading up to becoming a games designer?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I could say I began as a content designer in the second half of 1980. Uh, when a neighbor who was a sign writer at the time uh, handed off all these old D&D books to me. Uh, and I began running Dungeons and Dragons in the neighborhood. And uh, pretty soon after that, I just thought, well, this idea that the game isn't encapsulated and all the rules and all the content are already defined for us, that Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson had given us the opportunity to modularly extend the world first in terms of content and then in terms of systems, to me, it was just, it was the best idea ever. And so I started writing content in the later half of 1980. By 1984, I did my first dabbles into system design uh, when I had joined a live action role-playing group. And in in the hobby, we like to talk about fluff and about crunch. Now, fluff is the art, the story, the, the kind of soft stuff. Where crunch, that's the numbers, and the rules, the hard stuff. And some designers really are narrative designers or system designers. I am not. I have believed from the beginning that to get the game great, to really make it feel fun and to resonate with the audience, and with the players, we want to mix together the fluff and the crunch into a light kind of mixture. And so that the narrative aspects and the system aspects were together. And what I found in my early system design was that the hobbits in this game had great fluff, but man, did they suck to play. And so I solved that. Uh, and by adding on a trait called veteran, which gave the hobbits a point of armor that functioned both against regular melee attacks and against sneak attacks and against magical attacks, all of a sudden hobbits were a thing. You're like, yeah, I can, I can roll with that. And it wasn't just being self-sacrificial to go out there and be a hobbit because it's cute. Now hobbits had a little bit of a, uh, badass crunch to back up their, their fluff. And of course, as we know in the stories, like, hobbits are tough as nails against everything, and that is part of their charm. Um, after that, I began writing for various Dungeons & Dragons zines and uh, contributing both um, uh, content as well as systems going along. I took a long interlude uh, to do some higher education, uh, but when third edition d and came around, I was running at the time a homebrew system that I had built up all these sixes and crazy stuff, a really interesting world that was more focused on kind of like a Proto-Indo-European mythology, where there was very at kind of Hindu themes as well as European themes mixed together in a cadre of gods. Uh, I was very focused on the world, but when third edition came out, I was like, oh wow, I don't need to do the work of maintaining all the system stuff myself. I can focus on building the world. And I began to adapt that with what we call the Open Gaming License. And the Open Gaming License was like, boom, oh my God, now I can write authentic D&D content that is interoperable with a set of core rules these guys in Saddles designed. because there were some genius Linux guys involved in Redmond and in Washington who wanted to open it up. And they won that battle. I mean, D&D went from a, a declining product to dominating the shelves. And I'm happy I was part of that. I went with some partners and we approached Hasbro and we bought back the license to the original D&D world called Blackmoor with a partner, Dave Arneson. And then I worked with Dave Arneson to rebuild Blackmoor, like the castle of Blackmoor, the OG dungeon of dungeons into open source, open systems, 21st century, the world. And I've always been really happy about that. I rewrote the very first role-playing game module ever, uh, The Temple of the Frog in the open source setting. And I've always liked that, that there's this connection between that, those original guys who had this vision that gaming is, it's a business, sure. It's a hobby, yeah. It's fundamentally different than something like television, where you just get the stuff beamed into your mind. When you play games, it is a collaboration between you and the game designer. It is a cooperation between the dungeon master and the players. And I've always really liked that. It it, it suits me in terms of my temperament and my, my views.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I'd love to know what the turning point was for you to start working in the gaming sector.
1: So I did a bunch of different career paths. I think if I have to count them, I'm probably on my fifth career. While games design was always a sideline, it wasn't until I had a mate in my D&D game. I mean, he was playing in that pre third edition world of mine where I had made the entire rules from scratch. And he stayed with us as we went through third edition, and we also did some Gamble World. And I knew he had a a job, but he was a producer, it turned out, in the free-to-play games. And at that point, as someone who was interested in serious games, like what we considered real games, and of course, there's a bit of gender there, like it's manly to do this old beardy stuff, and the stuff on the phones was like more colorful and maybe aimed towards a brighter audience we were mostly a little bit resistant to getting involved in that. He overturned that. He was, you know, he's a great friend of mine. He's like, no, don't don't think that way. And so I went right from a, a kind of this alternate career path, what i have been teaching anthropology with a focus on religion and folklore. I mean, really, I have to say, I kind of have a, a PhD in Dungeons and Dragons. It's like oh, wow. my focus was on cross-cultural, like using text mining and other modern tools to get in there and really understand like how the monsters of Thor is fighting are similar to the ones Indra might meet. And like, what is the relation between the Greek Jotans and the Norse Titans? Like, I'm using text mining and I'm being an anthropologist, but I never stopped loving the Deities and Demigods book that I had from the 80s. And in my own explorations, I have to say that, that book is terribly flawed. Like, there I am. I mean, how did I have, for example, no contact with uh, Jinn, with the Islamic sphere at all, that deities and demigods, there's huge gaps based on European colonial mindsets and Orientalism that I was glad that I was in the university where there's also people pushing on that. So I felt that I had a great opportunity to bring in all these bits and pieces of interesting world culture. Uh, My current Dungeons and Dragons game that I still run, which I could say pretty much has been going consistently for over two decades, is set in uh, pre-Islamic Arabian Peninsula around 1500 B.C., and that's my chosen setting these days. Spears, sandals, uh, a, a rapidly multicultural world that's growing and burbling. And it just, it's not a bunch of medieval nights. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of past that in, in my, my personal interests.
0: That's really cool. So you mentioned that you were teaching anthropology. I'm just wondering how this might have influenced your thought process as a games designer?
1: So I was really interested in text mining and data visualization. And so one of the things that's really interesting about CryptoKitties and other blockchain games is that like the whole history of the game is written right there. I really did love my time working in free-to-play games for for Blue Mobile and for Hasbro uh, because there's a lot to love, but I also really enjoyed looking at how players had been exploring the various worlds. And what we have in the blockchain gaming universe is like, really the most complete record of all of that. And so I spent a bunch of time uh, looking at the blockchain and trying to look at patterns, uh, not just patterns of spend, but also patterns of behavior. One really interesting thing we found when we look at the blockchain world is the usage of the blockchain gaming world. There's no resemblance to the pattern of usage of the mobile gaming world. In that, In the mobile gaming world, there's whole economies that don't really participate in spend. Uh, on those mobile games. Russia and China, two large examples for different reasons. Whereas those are both groups uh, and cultures and languages that like love blockchain gaming and are full on. And so when we move to the blockchain world, I think that the interoperability and the notions of kind of a stability in an economic system that is not beholden to your current political leaders is extremely persuasive to certain groups of people. Like, for example, Russian friends still remember when all of a sudden three orders of magnitude were removed from their grandparents' bank accounts. Uh, And all of a sudden, someone who could buy a mansion uh, has a hard time buying a used car. And that kind of inflationary... or or massive deflation caused by the printing of money by central governments is a problem that is solved by cryptocurrency. And thus, people that have had direct experiences with hyperinflation like Zimbabwe or Venezuela are very interested in, are there models of money that we can get into so we are not completely beholden to the whims and policies of whatever government might be in control, control of the territory I'm stuck living in at the time?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, crypto brings so many exciting new possibilities. How did you first come across crypto?
1: Oh, oh, ephemeral. And so a long, long time ago, I used to love hitchhiking. I'm very proud I've circumnavigated the continent, North America twice. I've hitchhiked around the Arabian Peninsula. I've hitchhiked through South America. I really enjoy hitchhiking. Uh, Some people are scared of it. Uh, In my experience, you stand there and you risk it. And it's like, the nicest person out of the last thousand people is probably who you're going to meet. And so uh, I had taken a hitchhiking journey up through uh, Nevada and accidentally discovered Burning Man. So I basically got left by a slightly mentally ill guy at the middle of the Gerlach desert, Black Rock desert, North of Gerlach. And I just loved Burning Man. It was really interesting. And uh, soon after that, other types of festivals were on my horizon Ephemeral is by far my favorite of all the West Coast festivals. It is fantastic. Some people have described it as Burning Man on the water. I think it's a little bit more than that. In that, uh, basically, Ephemeral is on the water and is Burning Man-like in some respects. But when, when push comes to shove, Ephemeral is kind of anarcho-capitalist. Uh, strong on the anarcho and strong on the capitalist. And it is not centrally planned or centrally organizing Burning Man. And it was my exposure in the second ephemeral 2011, that I learned about a whole bunch of things, uh, including Bitcoin. And at the time I had left a little bit of money in my uh, savings account that I had as a graduate student, I was completely impoverished. Uh, And I was scared about connecting my bank account to the internet. But I thought, oh, I have this little bit of money because I'm frugal by nature. And I just said, what's the worst thing that can happen if you connect your bank account to the internet and put all the money on the internet? And so I took all my money and turned it into Bitcoins in 2011 and that turned out to be a prudent decision.
2: So just fast forwarding a few more years, as we're huge fans of CryptoKitties and Dapper Labs who have known to be the pioneers in the NFT space, how did you first discover the team and what inspired you to join?
1: Oh, so, uh, again, so I love to work in an environment with people from all over the world and you can learn so many interesting things by just being willing to listen to your colleagues that have different experiences. And so it was actually a Ukrainian guy, uh, who was working with me at Hasbro and, um, he turned me on to CryptoKitties because you had that connect. Here I am in Denver. I'm not that far from CryptoKitties, but I learned about it through people that went through much of Ukraine and back to the States and that kind of loopy loop as information travels. Um, I loved it. I thought it was fascinating. I, I, I learned about NFTs. I had really always been bullish on crypto. And so I immediately went with him and a team of artists and we began pitching to Hasbro. From inside Hasbro Gaming, um, I pitched. Kitten I pitched Elfin I pitched Monster Vale. I kept pitching these basically crypto variants of Dragon Vale, which was the flagship project of, De- of uh, Backflip Studios, which was the mobile branch of Hasbro at the time. I got a little bit of traction, but there is this problem in being really forward-thinking in such large organizations. And I still remember, I was at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. Um, I initially won a scholarship to go to GDC when I was still at Stanford, writing an essay about the temple of the frog. Uh, and so I'd been going to that conference before it became big. I loved it. And I just saw these two guys with CryptoKitties jackets. I chased after them the crowd and invited them to dinner. Uh, we went to a tiny little uh, delicious uh, Vietnamese restaurant on like fifth, I think. And I had been talking to the head of business development, at Dapper Labs and, uh, direct route. I I, I was like, yeah, I I can't do this. I can't move the future forward at Hasbro. I mean, I did love that I was running Monopoly. I was running My Little Pony. I was running Transformers. I was running Dungeons and Dragons. Like I had these great licenses in my hand, but what I could do with them was really constrained by Hasbro's more corporate vision. And, you know, there was also some top heaviness there. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons was a really hard project. The project was split between five offices on three continents in three different languages. That was just not an an efficient way to build. And I thought, yeah, I've been a startup guy before. Uh, I made more than half the money I made in my life, one check based on working for a startup and selling those pieces of that to Google. And I'm like, yeah, I've had my experience with big corporate America, learned a lot. Thank you guys, love you. I really appreciate the time I worked for Hasbro, what I learned from them, what I learned about, you know, Shaving and putting on a business jacket and being responsible in that way to present yourself as part of a corporation. But as you can see now, I'm happy to just let the beard grow and be indie again and and go to CryptoCase.
2: I think the future is very exciting. How do you think uh, Dapper Labs is uh, paving the way for the next generation of games?
1: You know, there's a lot of things we're doing, but I believe fundamentally the most important one is, is to slow in its essence. And so when people ask me, like, why is flow different? And I try to explain scaling. I don't want to get into too many of the details because you know, you get other people going to talk about the different types of nodes and so on. But the parable I like to tell is like, think about here we are in Toronto and we're being doing business with New York. Like it used to take 150 hours to get between Toronto and New York, maybe a little bit faster if you're going downstream in the kayak, but you know, it's 150 hours. And that's a 1.5-hour journey now with new technology. And so we've cut two orders of magnitude off the time it takes to do the Toronto-New York transaction that has to happen in person. You know, one more order of magnitude, that's like, you no know, minutes, like nine minutes. New York to Toronto. And with the super train, one day, maglev, maybe that's the case, you know. Maybe I'll get to New York, maybe, maybe 12 minutes. Um, flow can be, due to its architecture, able to solve all the problems we identified in CryptoKitties. And so, again, you learn by doing, and CryptoKitties built the NFT universe and we broke Ethereum. And the way we broke Ethereum made it abundantly clear to our local geniuses in the engineering team, these are problems we have to solve. If NFTs and if blockchain is going to be consumer products where we're selling cards and stuff like that, we have to solve these problems. And so flow can be Three orders of magnitude faster and three orders of magnitude cheaper than Ethereum. And right now, as we can see, the changes in Ethereum, you know, it can be slow, but more importantly, you know, upwards of $10 per transaction. There are a lot of types of transactions you might do for a penny, you won't do for 10 bucks. And for example, trading cards. Like many people are happy to spend 275, 350 on a pack of trading cards, and you might want to trade one for another one. If the transaction cost is twelve fifty, you're never trading those cards. I mean, maybe you'll trade the one that's worth three fifty, you know, but it's it's stagnant. Now, if the transaction cost is a penny, like you're back in business, and so that is a fundamental difference between the flow network and Ethereum is that we have designed an architecture that can keep the transaction costs as well as the transaction speed in the realm where we can make gains. And I remember. In the earlier days of my time at Dapper Labs, feeling quite constrained by Ethereum, but I don't mind working constraints. Constraints are great for a game designer. It's like put some boxes because I can think of everything, man. I mean, Cthulhu has got nothing on a a, a 21st century game designer. We got ideas. Give me that box. Okay, now there's a more craftsman-like problem to solve. And when I have to make sure that, you know, nothing goes faster than three minutes in the game, I'm like, oh, let's have some timers. Let's have some animations. There's tools you use to do with it. With Flow, I mean, even we get that speed, we can make games work on Flow that just cannot exist on Ethereum. And I feel very bad for something like Gods Unchained that's right there. And I like those cards. I want those cards, but no one is paying $12 to trade a card that's worth $250. It just doesn't make sense.
2: Before we dive into some questions around CryptoKitties, Flow, and the next generation of games, I just want to take a zoom out and talk about the industry as a whole. Why do you think there's been such a buzz and traction around NFTs in the recent months?
1: So I have, I have sold tens upon tens upon tens of millions of dollars of virtual, ephemeral goods. And you know... I love that. I think it's interesting. I think everybody wants virtual goods. I think that as we go forward, we're recognizing that durable virtual goods rather than ephemeral virtual goods are just fundamentally more interesting. And I would be really clear a better value proposition for the consumer. Now, there is an issue here because making something durable, you know, that costs a little bit of something. And so having the canvas bag that you take to the grocery store is different than that little plastic bag. But we all know that you know plastic bags and straws and that crap, it's, it's not necessarily it's convenient at the moment. It's not necessarily in the future. And I feel that the same way that your canvas shopping bag is different than that disposable plastic bag, your durable investment in an NFT that is a virtual good. in some sense, it's not that different than the Dragon bell dragon you have but the Dragonville dragon is just on somebody's server and it's gone. You can't do anything with it other than what they say you could do with it. The notion that I can have like a LeBron James or a talk shot that's truly mine. And it doesn't exist on your server, man. It is in our servers in the cloud. It's mine. And I can do with it as I like that is extremely powerful. And, um, We want to unleash that with the development of crypto keys on flow and the Kittyverse verse fully unleash that concept.
0: Congratulations for making it to this special part of the episode. To claim your NFT, visit openworlds.fm forward slash members. And the password to access is the nexus. That's all one word, the nexus. Once you're in, just follow the instructions and we'll be announcing our lucky winners shortly. So be sure to give us a follow on Twitter at openworlds.fm and good luck.
2: I'd be keen to see your showcase at one point, Richard, um, of your NBA Top Shots. Um, What are are your thoughts around the convergence of NFTs and gaming?
1: So I've always believed, I was in hardware for a while, and I always used the computer we were building to do my work. I believe wholeheartedly in eating the dog food. And so when I became a mobile game designer, yeah, I kind of put aside like those hardcore PC games I was most interested in, and I learned to appreciate and love uh, the mobile games. I mean, I, I looked for the ones that I liked. I, didn't, I didn't like them all. And I am fully immersed right now in the world of NFT gaming, and I have some favorites. And so right now, we've got some great stuff. I mean, I mentioned Top Shot, which super interesting stuff coming out of Top Shot right now that's going to expand the gaming potential of the use of those uh, Top Shots. Um, but also, you know, I'm, I'm interested in some of the little projects. I like Splinterlands. As a game, and that Splinterlands taught me you can really make free to play blockchain games, but you've got to be very careful about it. And I think Splinterlands and the way they structure the payment system and the way they structure the rewards is very smart, and I wish them well. Uh, and I think that there's a bunch of other you know NFT projects right now in terms of gaming that are that are going forward into the future. And are really going to can move it. I I quite like Skyweaver. Uh, I'm I'm interested in how they're going to make their monetization model work. We don't have quite enough information about that. That's another project here in Toronto. Um, But yeah, it's a good sign when you're 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 playing your own game in the spare time. And so I've been reading Cryptokitties on Flow, and I cannot wait to release Cryptokitties on Flow to the alpha audience. And as I said about the data. I love the fact that as an online game designer of my work, I'm in a constant conversation with the players, and I can't wait to see what they do with what we've built and to hear from them about what they think. In the meantime, yeah, I'm collecting some, uh, some splinterlands. I'm leveling up my skyweavers. I got my Gods Unchained cards in there. I, I really do feel that the card collection model is a strong one for the NFT market. But it's not the only one. And I push inside uh, Dapper all the time. Ultron! And so you've seen like, the Flow Rangers, because I'm the guy in every meeting, I'm like, Ultron! Five cats, four cats, stick them together different colors. Boom! Bigger cat. And I can't wait with CryptoKey's Flow to do that, where the cats aren't just aesthetic, but the cats have traits that are functional. And so the notion that these NFTs have some stuff in them, and when I stick them together, they make something else. Yeah, that's, that's, that's strong. That's strong. It's a potent combination. And it will get players interested in investing the time and resources into your game to really, to really make it fly.
2: So I'm sure there's many collectors who are excited about upgrading their crypto kitties, And I think to have that is going to be quite exciting. You previously spoke about durable and digital goods. What's the most exciting possibilities with what you can do with NFTs?
1: So I just mentioned the interoperability and composability. And those are the two things that I think are most interesting. So first of all, the idea that NFTs can fit together. And so that's uh, one core concept in the uh, CryptoKitties on Flow experience that we're designing right now, that uh, things are added to the CryptoKitties and they bond on and they not every crypto kitty can bond on to everything. Not everything can interact with every crypto kitty. There's some logic. As I mentioned, constraints. People don't necessarily want, like, some people love completely open sandbox to anything. That's definitely a market for that. But many people who are gaming, enjoy that there is a game there. There's some rules. There's, you know, you can't tag back. Once you tag someone, you've got to tag another person. And, and, you know, fundamentally, we are creatures that appreciate and are interested in rules. It's what allows our societies to function sometimes dysfunction too, Uh, but uh, the ability to have the various components interoperate with one another across experiences is the thing that is like kind of next level. And so engine and engine coin has been on the forefront of trying to make this work. Uh, I think there are some limitations to that model, but I believe strongly that we are right on the cusp of the things I do in this experience matter and it's not just a crypto I can sell and turn liquid it's a thing that I can take somewhere else and do something else with and I don't want to push out too much what we talk about metaverse but that's that's core to our, our concept of the nexus
0: yeah and we're going to be talking about the nexus in a minute um, but before we do can you tell us what you've been working on recently at DAPA Labs
1: so um my career trajectory this year first I was on NBA and I helped uh, do the user research and the interviews that aligned the project to its current set and that's, that's exciting uh, spent some time kind of immersing in basketball culture and basketball uh, after that I then went on to develop the early prototype that we were testing of the Nexus the, the Dapper Labs flow-based metaverse uh, and uh, after that I joined the CryptoKitties team and we have been working uh, whole hog for the last few months to bring CryptoKitties to flow. And so we just had an alpha test uh, last weekend, Uh, super exciting, lots of cats bred. And uh, we are in the process of kind of doing two things at once, is working hard to secure the value of the CryptoKitties on Ethereum on the flow network. And of course, there are some issues there because moving uh, cats between blockchains is a technical issue as well as an economic one. We believe the technical issues are close to resolved. The economic ones, there are still some open questions there, so we're working very hard to resolve that. Um, but primarily, like, let's just make CryptoKitties better. Like, we have an opportunity on CryptoKitties on Flow to do a lot of things like expand the size of the genome, uh, change how some genes operate... Uh, Take more of the rules that used to be, you know, there's some some variables that are just kind of hard coded. That I don't like. Let's take those rules and put them into the genome so the the cryptic kitties on flow cats can be even more flexible and even more interesting. And more to the point, you know, people selling free to play stuff love to sell hats, but you make more, and the customers are happier when you sell them magic hats that give you an extra spell. And so I'm moving CryptoKitties in the direction where the genes don't just generate cosmetic attributes, they generate functional attributes. And in addition, the genes interact with a system of extrinsic attachments that allow that composability, that Voltron feel where I could add a magic hat to my kitty that will then change its properties.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to see Kitties on Flow. How do you decide what type of games you're going to be building or designing next? I mean, we've seen so many announcements by Flow talking about their partnerships with the likes of NBA, UFC, Dr. Seuss. Um, what's going to be next?
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, there's lots of licenses. I enjoyed working on the pitch decks for Dr. Zeus. I love to get licenses. You know, one of my first jobs in the game industry was like, they were just told me, like, well, so you're kind of a colonial brat with, like, a British military father from some damn island. I, I'm originally from Bermuda. Like, could you help us, like, write some stuff up to try to get the James Bond license? I was like, <laughs> seriously? That's my job? So it ended up that the producers were uh, really only interested in film. So one of my first jobs in the game industry in, in mobile was to direct a short film to try to get that license to bring James Bond into the studio, which, which worked. And so, there's a lot of tasks you got to do here. You got to get the right IP, you got to get the right model, and then you got to like layer cake it all together. So, you're, you're building the right thing for, the, for, for an audience that exists that's going to surprise, delight, and please them.
0: Yeah. So, what would you say the most important thing is to consider as a game designer um, when you're building a blockchain game?
1: So, there's a huge, huge, huge consideration. And that is the open economy. So I love the open economy, but my God, does that create work for me? And so when we're building a normal game where the economy is closed and the only way you're going to get more eggs, the only way you're going to get more dragons, the only way you get more gems is if I decided that the rules are going to grant it to you or you pay. Um, now, oh yeah, like because I gave you an NFT, you can just give it to him. He doesn't even pay it. You can just be friends and you can hand it off. And I'm like, Whoa. So when you think about trying to have an orderly system of progression, where the player has those feelings of accomplishment that that get you really interested in playing more of the game, like, yeah, I want to have the plus one sword, then I want the plus two sword. And it goes forward. Big consequence of blockchain is that you as the designer need to relinquish some feeling of control over how the economy operates because it's it's not a toy economy. You're not the communist dictator controlling with central planning the flow of all the resources anymore. You're like, okay, capitalism is happening in my game. And you just have to adapt to that. Now, it's beautiful. It gives you lots of things. But it's also scary. And it means that many of the techniques that you might use, uh, if, even if you're an experienced free, free-to-play game designer, are, are not going to work effectively that. Because there's all sorts of different problems that arise from the open economy. And players are tricky and players are shifty. And if they can find a way to like break or manipulate or subvert the rules you've had, they will feel, some of them will feel totally justified in eating your lunch.
0: That's interesting. So, just to compare the difference of your experience designing games at Hasbro and Glue versus some of the blockchain based games you've been working on recently. What would you say are the main changes that you've come across between those two different worlds?
1: Well, I was lucky that I had a solid understanding of cryptocurrency and blockchain before I even encountered NFTs. So that helped. And uh, yeah, there was definitely a learning curve when I arrived. Although it was more like, wow, there are so many opportunities. I I did enjoy the mobile revolution because uh, one phase I didn't get involved in was like the console game phase. I, I didn't work... In video games during the console game phase, I know many friends that have those skills, and I wasn't part of that. And it was a little sad. It kept getting more and more like a refined industry where you know four years of experience was necessary for everything. But mobile was like they took me into a mobile game studio where all my previous experience was sure I've written software, but I mean my previous game design experience was in pen and paper role playing games. They needed people because they were making money, and they needed game designers. And so I had to learn fast moving to Crypto, possibly even a bigger change. But um, one thing I love about crypto is there's a community there. So you just kind of listen to the people. I mean, it's, as I said from the beginning, I like collaboration. I like cooperation. I like community. Those are like essential concepts and crypto has that. So one of the things I've really been focused on, which I mean, I have just designed so many games uh, so far, and you haven't seen them because you know, game game designs are cheap, but making video games is expensive. One of the things I really want to see is community structure where we incentivize the blockchain wise in order to cooperate with the blockchain naive in a social structure. That spans the noob versus expert. So that, you know, we're doing everything we can with the Dapper project and the wallet and so on to reduce the friction of getting onto Flow. And you can get Flow, uh, I mean, you can get top shots with just a credit card. You don't have to do anything really very complicated there. Uh, But we do want to use what we can in terms of people's existing social networks in order to, first of all, make them have more fun at the game and also help their community onboard them to crypto. And if you look at like super, super, super successful mobile game, Monster Strike, Monster Strike was amazing because its fundamental virality had to do with like, if I'm going to get this reward, that's fine. But if you guys are next to me on Bluetooth, then the reward is more than triple. So there's an incentive for me to have you with me while I'm, you know, spinning those marbles. And so we want to use that type of thinking to really... Um, allow the inherent virality of social networks facilitated through the network technology in order to uh, bring the first billion people to the blockchain. And I mean, that's Dapper Labs' goal. Billion people on the blockchain, we're bringing them. How are we doing it? Let's make it fun first. We learned from the computer science and previous you know, iterations. And if you make it fun, they will come. And then you can, then you can run the insurance stuff. Then you can do the, you know, other, these financial things Uh, and, and flow blockchain is more than just a games platform right now. We're building a games platform because building games platforms is how you use the new technology to bring an audience to your, your, your tech. I completely
2: agree, Richard. I think we need to make it extremely easy for the first billion people to be able to onboard and use this uh, new and exciting kind of uh, experiences. Um, It seems crypto games are quite transactional uh, centric. Uh, How would you say microtransactions
1: have kind of evolved over the years? Oh, very good question. Very good. So I still remember 1982 going to the mall with my mom. So at that point, I was in Eastern Canada, which was kind of a cultural backwater. I mean, we didn't get punk rock till like the late 80s. Um, but I watched them take out half the pinball machines from the arcade in the mall and replace them with Centipede, Tempest, Space Invaders, Pac-Man, that sort of stuff. And so from its onset to my experience, video games were incremental entertainment. Where you just pay as much as you want to have and then you walk away. There's, there's no large upfront cost, uh, but there's like a continuous stream of uh, payment as you're enjoying your entertainment. And there's lots of existing forms of entertainment like that. Um, going to a bar, for example, is very similar. no huge... Up, I mean, there are some cases where you have to pay a huge amount to get in the door. But in general, you just go and you drink what you want to drink and you pay for your drinks and then you leave. It's a very simple transactional uh, way of running your economy and selling fun. Um, there was that phase of console, which again, that that is not the phase of video games that I was deeply embedded in. But I was happy to see again... No, with Dungeons and Dragons, everything was always modular. They were called modules. You no, know? so you buy the thing, and the next thing, it's not that expensive. It's like seven bucks, eight bucks, and this is now a module. You add on to what you have, and you're incrementally spending. One of the neat things about D and D is we learned that once someone buys the Dungeon Master's Guide, their mean spend per year is like five x what someone who doesn't have a copy of the Dungeon Master's Guide is. And so, people who are involved in content creation, content management are much more engaged customers than people who are just interested in content consumption. So the switch to microtransactions, it wasn't the microtransactions. It was the genre and the color and the sound, which kind of turned me off of uh, mobile games at first. But once I got into it, I was like, wow. And I still remember one of my mentors, a really great guy, uh, Mr. Turo. He's like, well, are you a whale? I'm like, whale. Well, no, I don't spend much on these mobile games. He's like, look, man, you will never make a deer unless you're a whale. In order to understand how to make a good, engaging, money-making, great experience, you got to go find something on mobile and, and, and whale out, like buy everything you can buy in that game and see what that's like. And I was like, whoa. And I just did. I went I found a little turn-based strategy castle thing with druids and like my kind of stuff, and I was like, "Oh wow! So, what's it like to buy that ninety-nine dollar pack and that <laughs> fashion going forward? Totally different experience. Totally, and I was like, "Oh, this is good. This isn't. This isn't bad. This is like I got all this stuff now." And I remember collecting Warhammer fantasy battle figures, and you no, know, there were some card games in the mat. I was into Magic. I still remember trading a Berserk for a Coal Golem. Because that guy knew the rarity distribution and I did not. Still regret that. But hey, um, you don't know everything when you start the game. Um, and I feel that microtransactions were a huge step forward in that what we saw was this giant explosion of indie development. that was kind of stifled during the, con- the console days. You know, I'm not to say there aren't innovative console games out there. But again, you found that they kind of fit into these little buckets. And like all of a sudden, Super Monkey Ball is number one. You're like, what the heck is Super Monkey Ball? And the the microtransactions, by reducing the initial cost of the experience to zero, then having you pay later, I mean, it opened up gaming to everyone. And I remember uh, one of the real privileges I had was to work with Greg Kostikian on Dungeons & Dragons. And I mean, that man, I had played his games in the 80s. And I mean, Toon and Paranoia were some of my favorite role-playing games ever. And there I'm like in the office with this guy. And he said, you know, the free-to-play game revolution was basically the back-to-work legislation for all the old semi-retired game designers from the 80s. I was like, this is awesome. And so going forward from there, there is a problem in that once you get super corporate about it, There's more money to be made from the whales than there is from the rest of the population. And no matter how we slice it in the free play games, again and again and again, the games end up being whale heavy. And so I work at Dapper Labs with the mentality more that's free to spend rather than free to play. That yes, I want the initial experience of CryptoKitties not to cost you any money. I want to offer you that. But I then want to make you a different deal. I want to say, this is blockchain, man. We're making you a deal. The money you put into this game I mean, you can see that the money people put into CryptoKitties, the majority of the money that was earned off CryptoKitties went to the community, not to the developer. I'm saying, yeah, let's do more of that. Let's have it so that you are free to spend on this game. And I'm not here to try to trick you or exploit you or pay to win you. I'm here to say, you put money into this gaming system and we'll use this money to develop content and we'll make your game better, more fun, give it longevity, and give you what you want. Like Again, enjoyable experience where you can you know, be the tough guy because you've got all these cats and someone might have some less. And I want to use the game experience on the blockchain and use the slightly different economic system to develop a new genre of games that are similar to but distinct from the free-to-play mobile stuff that you're more familiar with. And I think the slightly higher price point the slightly higher like technical chops you need to really get into it are, are going to initially skew that a little bit so the games will probably be a little bit more towards mid-core than casual. Um, I'm not, not certain of that. And then the casual stuff will come, will come later. And so we're hoping we get free-to-spend games where people feel happy, comfortable, in supporting indie developers to make cool stuff that a big company would not decide to finance, but you don't have to wait for them because CryptoKitties is an open state game, not just open source, it's open state, man. I can see what's in all those cats and I can build anything I want on top of it. And so it's taking my old open source revolution, third edition d and and going, boom, not only do we all share the rules. Now, if your dude over there has that plus one sword, I can enchant his sword and put the fire rune on it because we are in an interoperable open state gaming system. Games are already bigger than Hollywood. And I think that going forward, they're just just getting bigger. And that gaming is the hobby of the future. And we want to make sure that gaming is open, fair, free, collaborative, and really there for everyone, but there's not these barriers of communities where people don't feel welcome or they have language. We want to just, let's just get rid of all of that stuff and have kids and adults all over the world interacting with each other, playing together freely and fairly. And, and I think that's a great goal. And I think blockchain is one of the fundamental platforms that will help that come about.
2: In your view, what are the challenges with building crypto games?
1: The open economy is by far the most substantial challenge. Now, there are technical issues. Um, I will say that from everyone I've spoken to on the issue, uh, I've dabbled just a little bit in cadence myself. Uh, Cadence is superior to solidity in many, many ways, but there are still... No, it's just a second generation language in that platform. So if you're used to JavaScript, there is some learning curve in order to make it work. Now the other thing that's super important, you know, you hear from the carpenter, measure twice, cut once. Like when you deploy a smart contract, that is more meaningful than you just updating the stuff that's on your server. And so you do have to be careful. And there are a type of error. I mean, I can remember the kind of loosey-goosey stuff that happens in mobile gaming, We have, like, that's why there's the verification note at the fourth step of the flow. Like, you can't make those little mistakes uh, or else they could balloon into things that can uh, damage or disrupt your economy. And those things will happen. Like, there's no way to be fail-safe. So we need to be prudent, careful, careful, excellent craftsmanship at every step of the way and work as a community to support one another so people aren't making those kind of errors uh, that can be economically damaging to the group.
0: Yeah, no, 100% I agree there. Uh, From a developer's perspective, um, how easy would you say it is to develop uh, crypto experiences like MBA Top Shot
1: on Flow? NBA Top Shot is a little, little heavy. Like that's a couple months of work with a reasonable sized team. Um, I think that developing crypto apps on Flow is faster and easier than on Ethereum for a lot of reasons. And we still want to encourage more developer tools to be built on the platform, and of course, there is a learning curve of those that know Solidity. Now, we want we want to encourage you to learn Cadence and to appreciate Cadence, and to realize that the resource-based programming model for blockchain is is, is just superior. And so uh, we're happy we have it. We want to go forward with that. But really, I feel the the way to go forward right now is to focus on CryptoKitties. Now, TopShot is also a licensed IP, so there are some issues there. CryptoKitties is us. And so I feel that CryptoKitties on Flow, as soon as we get that out the door, that is the ideal place Mm. for you to collaborate with us. And I mean, in no uncertain words, we will support you. We will encourage you. We will help you. We are in this together to build this platform. We want to make it work and we need your help. And we're happy to lend our help to you. And so um, things like, you know, right now, I just redesigned the back of the CryptoKitties card. But is that the only way to read the CryptoKitty? Do you want to highlight pairs of genes that uh, you know are gonna mutate? Uh, right now, I could go to kittydex and I can look that up and I can go do do the web pages. But like, you know, what is stopping you from uh, interacting with user interface? We believe that the, we had some great stuff happen with the, the cheese wizards competition in terms of some of the things that came out of people working <laughs> with cheese wizards were in some ways more exciting than Cheese Wizards itself. It was fantastic. Um, we want that kind of energy on the metaverse around CryptoKitties. The Kittyverse sphere is super important, and we believe that working to extend what is already there is is probably the most valuable area. And we now are in a Different position than we were at the time for the CryptoKitties to really support uh, those who are able to uh, develop in the Kittyverse. And so, yeah, get that emulator, start playing around with Cadence, RTFM, and uh, yeah, get on the Discord and uh, let's together uh, expand the Kittyverse. It is not just like one company trying to build everything itself. The point of flow and the interoperable is that everybody can work on it. So what I remember, you know, sure, Wizards of the Coast was still printing those players' handbooks, but we were printing Blackmore Dungeon. And it was that collaboration that just completely changed the role-playing game industry in the early 21st century. And we can, with your help, we can completely change how uh, gaming is done on this platform. And that means that you, as a developer, really get a say in what people can do with the, the best brand in crypto, which is CryptoKitties. And I don't know, I don't know how I can make you a better offer than that.
0: Definitely. And what has the traction been like on Flow recently? Have you noticed many developers who have started to build exciting new applications?
1: Flow developer uptake is great. Uh, we want it to be more. I expect that as soon as CryptoKitties is out of alpha and in beta, that's just gonna continue to accelerate. I wish I could tell you more because the licensing stuff is so exciting. I love working on licenses and IP as well as I love generating my own IP, but I really do love you know, working on Monopoly and something like that it was really fun. Like how do you make this stuff work? Um, we've got a lot in the pipeline of new interesting IPs coming to flow and uh, we wanna bring that forth with the developer community there so that very soon there's just more pieces of the puzzle. Like Crypto Giddies is there, Top Shot is there, uh, but I got to promise you there's more pieces to this puzzle. And of course, if anybody has friends who are artists or team makers that are artists, like, yeah, you can start building in this environment and have a little slice of your own intellectual property that can be part of what we hope will be the, the platform for blockchain games
0: forward. Sure. Can you share more details about the nexus that you're building?
1: Yes, yes. So um, Neuromancer, Snow Crash, Ready Player One, that notion of that virtual world, the matrix, there are a lot of pieces to build. Right? And so this idea that Oasis, like Ready Player One, I never liked that. That one big company did it all together, mm, I think that's less likely. What we're doing with the Nexus Metaverse project is trying to solve for you the fundamental economic layer. Now we have Decentraland, we have CryptoVoxels, we have Sandbox, we've got a lot of good stuff. I personally am quite partial to CryptoVoxels, you should explore, um, but we can do more. And so those projects are more based on like visualizing what's going on in the virtual world what we want to focus on with the Nexus is how you keep your stuff, how you earn what you get and what you do when you transition. So the Nexus metaverse concept is based on the idea of islands and inside islands that may have very limited primitives there, but we we need escrow and we need enforceable contracts. Those are the basis of any kind of experiment in anarcho-capitalism. I don't want to push this too far. I mean, Having gone to Stanford in the anthropology department, I am equally versed in neo-Marxist post-structuralism. When it comes to blockchain worlds, I'm thinking the anarcho-capitalist experiment is less dangerous than most types of capitalism. We're not cutting down into trees. Um, and also bears a little bit more opportunity. Um, and so what we envision is each of these islands is relatively self-contained and you can kind of do like WTF in there. What we need is a mechanism to balance the books when you move between these experiences. And that is what the nexus is. The nexus is check-in that makes certain that what happened in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. What happened in Vegas comes with you to Reno. (laughs) And what happens in Reno, that goes everywhere, you know? Um, And so what we want is a fair, transparent, honest crypto layer Underneath the metaverse, that you can really work with and build upon. Um, You know, there's a couple other things we want there too. So, for example, uh, torrents are awesome, Uh, privacy is great, communicating with your friends without the fear of Big Brother, uh, implementing speech codes on you is an awesome value, especially more important in parts of the world where people do not have that freedom as a matter of course. And so, we envision the layers of the metaverse to interact more directly peer-to-peer uh, than you would get in something like, you know, a derivative of World of Warcraft with more more, more worlds. In that my flow account and your flow account are hanging out and I'm seeing the stuff. so you know, there's a world we're walking in, but what's interacting between us, that's, that's, that's our decision and we're managing that. And there is, the only big brother is this, We're making sure that contracts are enforceable and escrow is provided. And so you're able to trade fairly with one another. Um, The rest of the rules of the metaverse, personally, I believe uh, that freedom is a valuable commodity and we should encourage people to build sane, kind, cooperative, voluntary associations of communities on the internet and the Nexus Metaverse is one step towards that. And part of that is for gaming, but I'm sure that I will leave it to the viewer to uh, think through the consequences.
0: For sure. I think that, um, that brings us to a close. Thank you so much, Richard. We really appreciate your precious time in coming on. But before we close, how can people get involved and keep in touch with the work that you're doing at Dapper Labs?
1: Oh, there's a couple of ways. So first of all, but you can take a look at the CryptoKitties.co page. Uh, we will always be updating that, and CryptoKitties on Flow will uh, clearly uh, tie in to CryptoKitties.co. On Twitter, uh, you can keep in touch with Dapper Labs. Uh, Dapper Labs will definitely make announcements with everything to do with the Nexus, the Metaverse, CryptoKitties, the Kittyverse, Shot, and so on. Um, you can take a look at NBATopShot.com. That will keep you in line with like the the primo collectible experience on the Flow blockchain and how that's developing. And I have to say, super exciting announcements coming up in the World of NBA Top Shop. So please pay attention. And if you want to learn a bit more about, you know, my view on crypto and gaming, as well as occasional posts about Enkidu and Gilgamesh and Assyrian archaeology and some of my other interests, I am Ostrogoth on Twitter. I don't tweet a lot. Uh, but maybe you'll find some of what I have uh, to contribute interesting, especially if the ancient Near East is of interest to you or if blockchain and gaming are things that you appreciate. Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. We'll drop all those links. Thanks very much, guys. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us about CryptoKitties on Flow, NBA Top Shot, and the rest of Dapper Labs' exciting projects uh, going into the brave new world.